Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm still Brian McLeod and we're into double figures. This is episode number 10 and this week's guest is Sean Parkinson. He's an artist, a singer, a musician uh, and a curator and producer as well. So the first time I ever met Sean was when I became involved with the Dundee Design Festival last year. Uh, he had taken on the role of producer of the festival, um, a massively difficult task with huge pressure and expectation and really tight timescales as well. But him and the rest of the team and all the people who contributed managed to pull it off fantastically well. And I think that's definitely a testament to him as a producer and also to... The way he worked with everyone, I think his really warm personality and the time he took out to to genuinely speak and interact and engage with everyone that was involved, I think that's what really helped it become a success as well. And I'm sure that's what he's going to bring to the, the festival this year, which is again happening in May. Uh, it's something that we touch on as well in the podcast. And we go through a lot of the themes that we sort of have emerged from the podcast in previous episodes. So things like how we define success, um, how you sustain your own practice and that, the idea of quality as well. So we dive quite deep into a few of those different subjects. Um, and he's just a really warm, engaging guy who is ridiculously funny, even if he, he doesn't realise it himself. Again, I'll stop going on about it and just let you hear the podcast. So this is number 10 with Sean Parkinson. I was discouraged from doing anything artistic uh, when it came to those those kind of critical moments at the end of secondary school when you're picking your university degree, which again sounds like a privileged thing, like when you're picking your university degree. I think we were, I was around at the time when that started to become more of the norm. When I was going through secondary school, it wasn't something that everybody did going to university, but it was becoming like that. And I think probably now around the rest of the UK where there's this kind of expectation of the middle class child does a gap year, you know, there was a kind of privilege there that I went and did an academic degree. And at the end of that academic degree, in, uh, in Edinburgh in psychology and philosophy went and changed totally and me and my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife uh, it's really hard not to kind of use the Adam Buxton way of saying my wife um, went down to St Martin's and did a foundation and then, and then started all over again doing fine art so I had this academic degree at the back of me and then went and did an arts degree down in London and didn't have that ridiculous overseas fees that one would pay to do a second degree. But it's also, yeah, as I say, it's a, it's kind of a ridiculous thing being able to do like a couple of degree, degrees back to back. And that time and that kind of luxury to figure out where it is you want to be and what it is you want to do. And I think, God, I'm still, I'm, you know, I'm still totally undecided. I'm still kind of in a perennial crisis all the time about what it is I should be doing or what it is that I'm kind of good at. Do you know what I mean? I think that's a healthy thing, though. Yeah, probably. I think that there's also... There is an indulgence in it, though. 
mm. um, kind of constant. Is this? It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a middle class emergency, isn't it? About kind of what is the best route for me to express myself? Maybe it's not. Maybe I've just kind of got a hangover of guilt from somewhere. But yeah, there is an, an anxiety there. That is this the thing that I should be doing? Is this the kind of right format? And I think that I've. Uh, I had that kind of decision of, of going down either an academic route or I did music quite a lot when I was younger. So I did a lot of singing in bands and then did lots of kind of session singing for, for different bands. It was terrible kind of funk music, terrible, where I would kind of ape a kind of very scrawny James Brown. It was awful. But um, then doing the arts degree answered a lot, I think, for me, because within the visual arts, within kind of fine art, it, it's something that can encompass all disciplines. So I quite liked the fact that it allowed me to to write and to make sculpture and to do singing and for all of these things to be perfectly valid. You know, it just depended on how you termed it. And that I found was, was really useful for kind of any career I wanted within the arts subsequently. So from that, I worked for a bunch of arts organisations. I worked for the Institute of Contemporary Arts in, in London. I worked for um, a, a charity that brought, an arts charity that brought artists and poets and scientists together to look at climate change, I suppose it was to find where the metaphors are, are uh, of, of climate change between all of these disciplines. And they kind of sailed up to the Arctic in a, in a quite a heroic way. And then the project I really became involved in was one where rather than looking to the high Arctic for, for the effects of climate change, how is climate change affecting communities closer to home? So they were looking at the west of Scotland, Western Isles of Scotland. And going up there and sailing on a, a, a whale research vessel with a bunch of different artists and, and scientists took me to the Isle of Mull. And being on the Isle of Mull, I remember phoning my wife back in London and uh, and saying, yeah, we can totally live here. Um, just had a kind of feeling. And then having kind of moved around a bit and done a, an, an, another kind of, po well, done a postgraduate at the Slade. Just ended up in Edinburgh and then ended up on Mull. You know, it was also a time where there was a few paths that opened up, up in front of us. There was lots of different options. One to stay, one for a job in Glasgow, one to do yet more studying at Glasgow School of Art, to do a PhD and then to go to Mull. And that one kind of seemed like the most dangerous one to do. It turned out it really was. <laughs> Is that yeah. what drew you towards it then, the danger of it? Yes and no. One kind of, we, we wanted a, a different way of living, I think. We've always been quite into growing and landscape, I suppose, and being out in the woods uh, foraging for mushrooms and things like that. So we were quite keen to to be a bit closer to that. And my experience of, of the Western Isles was that, that it was such a kind of rich area for culture, for all different kinds of culture. So I was really interested about what the prospect of bringing 
not bringing, but kind of developing a contemporary art program on a, on a place like that would be. And it was a massive challenge. And it was right up until the end, a massive challenge. And I learned a ton from it about how you need to take people with you, how if the foundations of, of certain organisations are not good to begin with, then, then it is a, it's, a, it's a really difficult uphill challenge. But also how to behave and how not to behave, you know. It was a kind of, it's given, it's given me a, a, you know, an, an idea for a whole bunch of novels, a musical as well, you know, and a massive series of parodies. Or just how brutal a community can be. Um, and how, within that, some spectacular individuals, and a spe- it is still a spectacular place, but it was it was a challenge, you know, it really was for for on every level, kind of professionally, personally, you know, for a for a family, for a kind of young family, we were having uh, our third child was was due to be born when we all had to kind of move quite suddenly, and that's what brought us back to Dundee was was kind of a necessity, but also out of right. We need to start to take control over where our lives are heading and what do we want within that balance. One of the reasons that I wanted to go to Mal was to kind of find the balance between my art practice, which was um, at that time kind of making sculpture, but really was singing more, how singing and music making could be part of an artistic practice. So part of the visual arts, rather than it being, I mean, it's kind of weird even to distinguish between all these disciplines. It's all one thing. But it is to do with the audience, I suppose. So, and I, I did kind of have access to more recording facilities and to, to being surrounded by brilliant musicians that all travelled to the Western Isles. But we found that work took over and politics took over. And we were just thoroughly consumed by, by life there that I wasn't really making anymore. I wasn't writing anymore. So that balance had kind of gone askew. So moving back to Dundee has, has given me that back again. And I think that I kind of firmly believe that none of these aspects of one life, one's life exists without the other. You know, it's all totally interlinked. So my family and my work and, and the place in which you live are all totally linked. And the decision that one takes of, of how you develop one area of that, it, it, it has to, it affects everything. So all of that stuff needs to come into play. So coming back to Dundee, I was dead lucky in that um, it was a kind of neat segue between one job and another. And I was quite keen to, to, to put some distance between my experience there and the one, and, and a kind of a new experience. But also it was a weird one, you know, coming back to the city in which you grew up in. And we lived with my mum for like four months, you know. We had our third baby there and I think we were sleeping in the bed that, that I think I was conceived in, do you know what I mean? <laughs> which um, is disturbing enough, but we kind of slept next to the framed portraits of all my brothers and sisters in our graduation gowns. It's weird, you know, all like in that kind of smoky... Vaseline tinted uh, images so it felt like we hadn't moved on at all but of course we had and, and 
you know, I should kind of, I should offer kind of a, a subtext to this, which is, I think that all of the experiences over, like all of those experiences, professional experiences, the ones dealing with artists and and working with with loads of different people, kind of prepared me for 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 what I'm doing now, which is a mixture of kind of curation and producing, but also my own stuff. So I I, I balance I probably about fifty fifty, okay. and that well that swings, you know, as as we've got this the second design for Dundee Design Festival happening next May 2017 but I couldn't have done any of what what occurred for the first Dundee Design Festival without the experiences I've had over the last few years but especially over the last two years. I think that's it's interesting because you see more and more creatives who become experts at their practice yeah but in order to fulfill their career and move it forward you Uh have to move outside of that almost yeah and learn skills as you say from your experiences and from everything else to move into things like management of other people or uh-huh. curation of, of other work and uh-huh. it's it's not necessarily anything you ever get taught no i mean they are there there are the thing is that there are courses now i mean it's the way that we talk about we talk about the producer now the way we used to talk about about the curator and there was lots of courses that 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 popped up on curation and and now people are not using that word and now using that, the term producer. And even, even, I mean, it's really difficult to define all of these things and it's it's kind of problematic. But kind of even when we talk about an artist or a designer or, I don't know, they're all, in many ways, yet we're dealing with different a different agenda, a different client often, often, um, a different set of motivations, but fundamentally, I think it comes down to a similar point in which we're all just trying to communicate or share something with others. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're trying to kind of foreshorten that gap between us and other people. And and what you're saying is correct. Like how how do you how do you get there? Is is quite often moving outside of comfort zones or kind of into into areas in which. You feel uncomfortable. I, I like that analogy that um, I can't remember the name of the producer, but the um, uh, Lily was it Lily White who produced like produced like loads of different albums, but um, the one he did with Nirvana, something I kind of one of my three quotes, I think, but um, or anecdotal uh, anecdotes. But he when he had Nirvana in in the studio when he was um, producing Nevermind. He got them all to start off by playing really, really loud and then by playing really, really soft. And that the kind of sweet spot is 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 somewhere in the middle or is it a kind of something that moves between a range of both extremes um, and is neither one nor t'other. And I think that, yeah, it's kind of good to, to move between those things out of something that you do feel comfortable in. Um, that for me was definitely moving to Mull, something that it's, the, it's like the Peter principle, isn't it? Like that always being employed in a, a position that you feel underqualified for. And I think also in terms of art making it, it's a similar thing. You should, as soon as you start to get a wee bit too comfortable, you, your work becomes staid and maybe perhaps uninteresting to, to you and therefore to other people. 
I mean, where I am in my work, so I'm, I'm just, um, so the 50% of my time that I, I spend doing my own stuff is usually um, at home recording um, strange sounds, either by me or my children or slamming doors or um, I go into a studio for two hours a week and scream through megaphones and kind of whistle through vocal folds and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, playing. And quite often, more recently, I've found that I can do that thing where I can rock up to a, a gig or a performance in a gallery and rely on the fact that I, I can sing pretty well. You know, I'm not a trained singer, but I can sing pretty well for an amateur. And that I rely on that kind of rhetoric of, oh, that, that dude can sing, to kind of win over an audience. But I'm finding more and more it's not enough. Like there needs to be something else that develops that practice, that project to something more meaningful, I suppose, or something that, that's yet yeah, different. It's different from everything else that's come before. I really like the... I read an interview recently with Björk and she was talking about her desire to use current technology. And it was partly to do with being relevant. And it was partly to do with having a say, having, an, uh, having a, a stake in uh, technology. Partly as to offer a rejoinder to probably what all the kind of more sinister um, forces are out there using it as well. So you, you kind of get the military using these kind of this, this technology as well as the, the creatives. And um, I kind of feel similarly that you, you need to speak or you need to be of your time and not just be anachronistic all the time, which I think that I have a, a penchant for. Do you know what I mean? I'm not terribly... I'm not very well hooked up. I don't think I kind of deliberately keep myself quite separate in, in many ways from from a lot of online outlets and activity. But I use kind of technology to suit my own ends. You know, like I... This is all over the shop. And in my mind, I kind of know what I'm talking about. But maybe I should be a bit more clear. Fuck it. Let's, let's talk about... Yeah, let's talk about sharks. Should we talk about sharks? Yeah. So yeah, so I'm doing this new project at the moment that I've been developing for the last few months, which is that starts with with me and my voice and how I might give a voice to this deep sea animal. Have I told you about this? No, it's amazing. So this, well, you know, project is amazing, but this creature is it's just totally incredible. So this this animal called the Greenland shark, which is one of the oldest living vertebrate animals, like lives to. 450 years old. Um, they live in the, some of the, the, the deepest and darkest waters and in some of the most cold, the, the coldest and most northern waters of any shark. It's like the second largest of all species of shark. Um, so they kind of live for this really long time and they move the slowest of all sharks so much that they kind of, they call, another name for it is the sleeping shark, which for a shark, you know, that, that, adage of, you know, I'm like a shark, I have to keep on moving, otherwise I'll die. And it's true, you know, like the oxygen needs to flow over the gills and this creature moves almost imperceptibly slow, that it looks like it's stationary. Um, 
So th think about that. This thing that lives in perpetual darkness for fucking long time, you know, in these kind of extremely cold waters, that 99% of its species is also blind, um, partly because they live in the dark, but also because they've got these worms that attach themselves to its eyes and feed off its corneas, and that dangle like kind of tassels, you know, or, or tears that, that are you know, piped from a glue gun. That and these worms apparently also glow bright green. And its flesh reeks of piss. And uh, uh, it's got so much urea in its flesh that when they catch these animals and they, if like huskies were to eat it, then it, they ferment in its stomach and the dogs get drunk. And it's kind of toxic to humans, so they kind of ferment it and it, it, it develops a kind of cheese-like funk. It's revolting. Um, so I was drawn to this animal because it's so other, you know. Um, you can kind of imagine these creatures, but actually the fact that you can't outdo nature, nature always outdoes you for weirdness. And I kind of imagined what this creature in, in kind of perpetual nighttime with these other animals eating its eyes. And also it's been known to have whole reindeers within its stomach, you know. Uh, it's just incredible. But I kind of wanted to imagine what this thing is, an image of this thing is in terms of intimacy, in terms of just love, you know. Like none of these animals have ever seen each other. They're all absolutely entwined, but none have ever seen each other. They're so close to one another. So they, they're all, but they're all blind to one another. And what happens then if these voices intermingle? You know, they're kind of almost a synapse away from one another. But also how completely alien all of this is to us. So what kind of voice might it have and, and what indeed is a kind of parasitic voice? So at the moment I'm, I'm working through a series of songs. This all sounds kind of quite highfalutin, but really it comes down to a series of love songs. Like a, yeah, like a, a melodrama, I suppose. So I've been working on a series of love songs about this thing that, that includes a few instruments, a bassoon, which is really kind of wormy anyway, and a triangle, <laughs> you know, this kind of trinity of love between these three creatures. And then working with the, the Rubaba Choir, which is a, a choir that's attached to a gallery in Edinburgh. And we all sing together and make these kind of disharmonious noises. Um, so that as a kind of counterpoint to the stuff that I do for the rest of the week feels right to me, you know. It feels brilliant that that's work, that finding out what is the most horrendous noise I can make at the back of my throat and, and spending a few hours a, a week just trying to explore that and taking it very seriously is brilliant. You know, I think that, that, that sometimes it, it sometimes doesn't feel like work or I, I feel that because maybe I'm not getting paid for it in any real sense that I can't qualify it as such or fuck, how's this contributing to anything for either our family or to life, you know? But I suppose I always argue that maybe, maybe this is not it. Maybe this project, maybe this noise is not it. But maybe it's all kind of helping 
me or us move in some direction. So I like I like the ex the extremes of art as well in that we have this amazing civilizing force that allows us to produce like bonkers stuff, but to take it seriously because that's the kind of that is the kind of civilizing force I think of art is that we have the freedom to express things in a quite a bonkers way and that we should allow that we should it's, celebrate that is that what you enjoy about it then because then surely there's value in it if it brings you enjoyment and then it motivates you to go on and produce other things or work in other areas yeah totally but but what, what also motivates me is is um it, it that it's not in a vacuum that it's not a boy playing the guitar like power chords in a in his bedroom which is brilliant but the I suppose the expressive side of it is that it needs to reach, it needs to land somewhere, it needs to reach somebody else's ears, it needs to kind of connect some way to an audience. So I am kind of conscious of that. I, I, I think that that is really important, but also how, for me now, the opportunity to work with more individuals, like to work with dancers, to work with, with costume makers. So Kerry Aldo, the fashion designer, the menswear designer, she designed this costume for me that is a kind of waxed cotton that was made in, you know, developed in uh, Halle Stevenson up the road that I scuffed on the corner of a table and she made this costume that I flip over my head and that just rings my mouth in this waxed cotton and it looks perfectly like a shark. Do you know what I mean? So just getting the opportunity to work with Kerry as a result of the, the Dundee Design Festival, getting the opportunity to work with a bassoon player from Rubaba, um, you know, the guy I work with at the UNESCO offices, Andy Truscott, he plays in a band called Kinbrae and he's an amazing musician and, and getting to work with him, you know, like all of those opportunities, like any kind of meeting is, a, is an opportunity just for some kind of exchange. That sounds filthy, doesn't it? But I think that's really, that's great. And, and now knowing the value of what those kind of collaborations can bring just means that, that I'm kind of more heightened to that now. And I suppose having a practice that is one of, that needs collaboration. I think it's really exciting, but, so there's the joy of making, definitely, but there's there's also the, also reaching an audience. So always having some kind of output for it. So a gallery performance or a chance to sing with a choir. I mean, I'm doing that recently. I'm doing it every two weeks, going through to Edinburgh and leading this choir. And I, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and that was the first moment in a long time actually, well, in, in, for, in a few months, where I, I had no idea how to get the best out of this group. And it exposed everything in me, like an amateurism, uh, maybe a, an unpreparedness of, of that event, of how do, you, how do you facilitate a bunch of people to, it's just like, it's like any kind of workshop, who are not there to listen to you, who are there to sing themselves, who are not interested in your shitty anecdotes, or even kind of hearing the quality of your voice. It's about their voice. So actually, and that's what I was all, I really was excited about that because it was, it was about kind of listening to other people and to try and get the best out of them. And I suppose coming full circle, that, that's what I really enjoy about curating and working with other artists and working with other designers. On, on Mull, we commissioned some brilliant projects by Rachel McLean and... Mariana Simnit, Ilana Halperin, uh, Hardeep Pandal, who all came to the island. I got to know their work. I get. I I got to kind of encourage 
aspect of their work, but also kind of fundamentally just to listen and to kind of hear where were the kind of sticking points in their practice or what was the things that they wanted to achieve but hadn't been able to. And just the kind of pleasure that you can have in just saying yes to a lot of questions. You know what I mean? Like, can we do this? Yes. Let's find a way. There's something brilliant in that. Um, and with the Dundee Design Festival, which, you know, I was only employed in, in February for an event that was happening in May, which was terrifying. And, I, you know, I kind of feel that there's always an air of, um, I suppose one needs to have an air of confidence. I mean, you need to kind of think positively about these things because they always come good, I think, you know. But you do need to be mindful of the problems of, well, actually, that's, just... It's interesting to say that, that they always come good, but yeah. that only comes because of the confidence. Yeah, okay, I see what you mean. Maybe just the confidence of like something always good to happen, something always good comes of it. So even like the absolute shitstorm that happened to us, I recognise like loads and loads of really positive, positive things that have come out of it. So it sometimes takes a long time to realise that. But yeah, I suppose I, I do. I do think that there is an attitude. You do need to have a positive attitude for it, because you know what it's like to either work with with people or or, or even clients. The people who are, I mean, there's no point in being um, Pollyanna about it and like saying that everything is, is that you feel glad about everything. That's pointless. But it's also recognizing that that you don't come to the table with problems. You come to the table with, like, right here's the here's a bunch of solutions to something. Here's the, what the problem is, but here's a bunch of solutions to it. Which one should we go for? Like, I find I find it really frustrating when working with other people where it just something they just lay something on the table that's stinky and that you then have to mop up at the end of it it's about the the great thing about working collaboratively is that you identify that problem and collectively try to find a solution to it so even with uh with the design festival honestly i had waking nightmares just about the amount of work that we had to do. But going back to something that we kind of talked about, we've, we've talked about, is this idea of quality. How do you ensure quality? Because it comes down to that, I think. And, and I think there's loads of interesting things around that idea of quality, like who defines it? How do you know what it is? Who are these gatekeepers that define what quality is? And also how you can't put a, a, a kind of gloss over everything after after it's been said and done and recognising where, where were the problems what were the things that that didn't go well but I suppose so yeah so, so cutting through the confidence thing I think I feel constantly scared I think I feel nervous that I'm not quite up to it I feel quite often that and I'm conscious of it that am I blagging Am I speaking about this confidently? As in, do I know what I'm talking about? Because that's a that's a nervous thing, you know. Like I think that one you should speak confidently, but I I I, I don't like dishonesty, and I and I don't like bravado. So, and I'm not even just talking about doing stuff for as a kind of curator or a producer, but with everything, you know, with everything, and in kind of meetings socially or that kind of constant fear, I suppose, 
I suppose that that is kind of that's that's quite me. I think like, I I I I do have a kind of confidence in myself, and I kind of feel I know who I am. But there's that that there's there's always that questioning of is this good enough? Or is this is what you're saying is all, all right? Or you know, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Is are you worth anything? You know, is this interesting to anyone? Are you on the right track? Is this what you should be doing? And I think that sometimes I kind of, I'd love to work in HMV. You know, there's sometimes I just think, does it, I don't, does it exist anymore? Does HMV exist yeah. anymore? I'd just love to kind of hide behind a counter and to listen to, to some really far out jazz all day long and to, <laughs> to speak about DVDs and stick stickers or you know something that to be surrounded by culture but not to kind of have to worry about the how invested I am as a, as a character as a person and does that even make sense it makes a lot of sense to me I've had a sort of similar experience if you like that I decided three or four years ago that I wanted to take a year away and yeah. go snowboarding we went to Canada for a year mm-hmm. and I'd been graduated I'd done a few years in industry mm-hmm. I felt I'd, I'd built up a good skill base. I was quite an established designer at that point, but I felt like if I didn't do it then, I was never going to do it. Yeah. And I was relishing the opportunity to do a job where it wasn't as challenging mentally, mm. and I could just sort of switch off and go through the days yeah. and enjoy why I was there, which was the snow. Yeah. So I was a lift operator. So I loaded skis and boards onto a gondola. Yeah. Day after day, and it was fantastic for the first few months. <laughs> it was great and then it starts to eat away at you yeah and so I had to do little bits of design and mm. creativity and I started editing stuff together for little video competitions and doing little bits of t-shirt design and everything else on the side to keep that nagging little thing saying yeah. why have we not doing this mm-hmm. I miss doing that yeah and I think that's once you become once you find out who you are and what you want to do with your life then that's always going to be there, I think, and that you need to have an outlet for that in some respect. And I think that I often have this, but that's it, you know, this, I mean, I, I totally believe in work as well, you know? Was it, Freud, was it Freud that said, you know, the meaning of, I don't know, was it love and work? Actually, I, they're, they're the two things that, that I totally subscribe to. But that feeling that you have when you're working really, really... See, I, I, I like that, that kind of chase of quite literally running between things and the, the deep vein thrombosis that you get from, from sitting on a hard seat and working late into the night because there's a deadline approaching and, and, and everyone needs to kind of pull together. I do really like it, but it's usually in hindsight, you know? It's usually that feeling of like... Um, you know, again, just always thinking, I can't wait for it to be over. I can't wait for it to be over. But it's nearly weekly now, you know. Uh, after this week, that's it, plane sailing. That's it, oof. You know, so after every big event, and I think you do get event fatigue. But after the end of event, you you think, that's it. When it, On Tuesday, when the event's finished, it'll be brilliant, you know. Um, I'll just watch Netflix. I'll eat bonbons. That's it. But it's it's always... It's always a come down, isn't it? There's that, yeah. I, you know, I, I do, I do really like, I do really like the challenge of it all, you know. And 
I, th- I you know, coming to coming back to Dundee and being in a position which I, you know, I have a I have a, a background in design, and I, this, a lot of the stuff that I did for for the ICA in London was it was around design and and kind of events around creatives sharing their kind of practice and, and trying to inspire one another and kind of mentoring programs and all that kind of thing. So I kind of knew what I was getting into, but the absolute joy I had was just getting to meet the most fascinating people that were all here. And, and you know, I think I just kind of totaled up just a ridiculous amount of meetings, but not on a kind of shit way, just these 50-minute bursts with just fascinating people where I would just fill up notebooks about their work and it all kind of came down to this shared ground of, of design and I really liked that and with the tensions and the, the worries of coming back to a city in which I grew up in and that kind of whole haunting of a, a previous life it's a city I don't totally recognise anymore and probably I didn't know that much when I was growing up but something that feels invigorated and Quite literally, when you look out, it feels... I can remember, I, I lived in Berlin for a wee while, and you would just see, like, cranes spinning in the sky. And just getting to see life happen is brilliant. So getting to see buildings uh, being built here, and getting to see individuals come together and, and share their ideas, and to see what happened at Westward Works, and that whole transformation of that building. But especially in the last few days, with that kind of smell of sawdust mixed in with that kind of stink of ink, you know. And then to see kind of, you know, 7,000 people come through the doors and to to scan uh, around the room and to see so many different kinds of people. It comes back to that thing of audience, you know. We, it, was a, it was a really good thing to show what was happening here and for me to kind of find out what was happening. So what was the most difficult thing about, about pulling all that together? The, the time. It was... It was crazy, but um, but then again, maybe it wasn't because we did it. What was the most difficult thing? I suppose it. What was the most difficult thing? The most difficult thing is communicating. I think getting the finding the right register, finding the right way to communicate with one another, like not just like an audience, but also the the participants, the designers the design community that's here. There is also something about just giving a a city and a community more, more, just more, more nourishment, more oxygen, however you kind of want to, uh, whichever kind of shitty metaphor you want to use. But this, this thing that it's, we, we need to be having these kind of conversations and these conversations with other designers, with other disciplines, with, um, just as many, as a diverse a group as we possibly can. And to use these events, like a Dudley Design Festival, as an excuse to bring people in from different cities. And when you have them there, how can it enrich our city? You know, is it is it an exchange? Is it kind of a mentoring opportunity? Is it just to kind of have them speak about their work? Because there is something really enriching about that, about hearing what other people, what other people get up to. And the challenges that they face and their inspiration, isn't it? I mean, this is why you're doing this podcast. So yeah, I, I kind of it's it's a great excuse to to make invitations to people. And I think the conditions are right in Dundee now for that to happen. 
I think I felt before that it was maybe just a, a line that we would spin. That I've said it before that you know we were this kind of capital of cool or something. I don't know, and. I think that people can see through that if it's not genuine, if it's not authentic. And I think the people in the city can see through that, like the, the creative community can see through that. And I think that it's not just about putting all our eggs in a, a design basket, but just to kind of show that what is the power of creativity. And I think that there is a, a kind of an extraordinary power there to enrich people's lives, or, yeah, to change people's lives. And that's a kind of line that's that's spun out quite easily, isn't it? But I see the, I can see the effects of it. And you see the effects of it on young people. And it, it scares me to see how we're removing it more and more from the curriculum, art and creativity, art and design from, and, and music from, from a curriculum. So again, how can these events be an excuse to, to bring in those kind of audiences, like to bring in young people, to bring in teachers, to kind of just demystify a lot of what these roles are, what people do when they call themselves a designer. What do they mean when they call themselves a designer? What does it mean to, to, to be a musician now or to, to call yourself an artist now? We all have a, a role to play. We all have a, have a responsibility to play in that. I suppose this is the, the, what we're going into in the, the design festival next year in 2017. It's only the second one. And I think that the building that we are housed in is, a, is a, both a, a blessing and a curse. It's this vast space, but with any kind of vast space, you feel compelled to fill it. And, and fundamentally, it, needs, it does need to come down to quality over quantity. So in terms of next year's festival... Yeah. Um, Personally, what's your measure for success? Oh, God, that's difficult. That's, always, that's, that's, a, that's a good interview question, isn't it? I think I've been asked. I think I was asked this in in the in, in my interview for when I got this when I got this job, and I think I gave a terrible answer of imagining Bruce Lee punching beyond the target, and then kind of you know that thing where you you you. Think about what it is post-event and, and imagining back. What what are the images that that stick out? I think that we have a role. Fuck it. Try and answer the question. Try and answer the question. But the, the concept of success is difficult. Thing, and I've spoken to other people yeah. about this as well. Even in respect to your own practice. Yeah. Um, success could be sustaining a career, paying for where you live and paying for you to eat and being able to do creative things. Um, so it doesn't have to be this all thing and have a okay. next number of visitors and all this sort of stuff. It could be anything. It could be a lot simpler. Right. So there's a bunch of answers. Basically, that's it. So there's a bunch of answers. The first one is, did you say what you were going to do? Did you do what you were going to say you were going to do? Right. So that appeases one of your funders, but also the people that that came along with you on the journey that you said, yeah, this guy, you said he was going to do that and now they're doing it. So that's one, Right. Also, I quite like it when you do more than you say you're going to do, right? So that's more more success. Thank you. Sometimes when it's totally different from what you're going to say you're going to do, but it was better, right? <laughs> you have no idea how you might measure that, but it's just better. Or that you kind of were willing to take more risks and to accept that some of them didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, but some of them resulted in a kind of an event that no one could have foreseen. Yeah, that's a total challenge. 
And some of them are just like loads of people came. Loads of people came, loads of people got drunk, loads of people had a good time. So there's, 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 yeah, there's all those kind of things. And to kind of see a legacy of that, you know, and the, the legacy sometimes you can't see immediately. It takes years to kind of see how success has changed something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of. I like the, that concept that it has an influence across yeah. the wider community. And yeah. More than just that five days that there are elements that will then work their way into people's practices or yeah. the people that they've met will then work their way into people's practices. I think, yeah, that's one of the important things in terms of a legacy that it's, okay, yes, it happens once every year, but that shouldn't be it. Yeah. It should it should be happening all over and that should yeah. be a celebration at one point in the year, but then it still has that influence. That yeah. Is I suppose that's it. Like, I'm speaking quite off the cuff, so it's, <laughs> so I'm finding it quite hard to, to really form, like, you know, like, I could give you the kind of um, application style answer, but, but even... Like, what are we doing this for? Like, why are we having a design festival? And one of the reasons is, is that we kind of want to, we want to kind of keep people here. We want to sustain life here. We want to keep and grow design practice here, I think. And how do you do that? You kind of need to, to bring in more individuals here to provide more opportunity here. And that can only be measured in kind of three to five year increments, I think. I mean, we've already seen... In the last six months, people leaving the city mm-hmm. who exhibited at the first design festival. I don't think that's a bad thing. That that happens. And and a lot of people have moved away for really good reasons. Partly because, you know, their a partner got a job somewhere, or they got a residency somewhere, or I don't know, they'd never be, they'd never worked outside of the city before, so they wanted to give it a bash. I think they're all, all completely laudable. But it's about, we need more water coming through, I think, mm-hmm. as well. So it, it comes to do with a, what is our strategy collectively and for sustaining creativity here? And it's not just people like me or, or even people that are working in the, the, the art school or, or people that are working in fleet or whatever. It's not necessarily just their job, but it is all of our jobs because it benefits us. I want to have good conversations with other individuals, and I want them to be here for me to have them. It's extremely difficult to sustain creative practice. Yeah. And there is, there's a lot of labels and things that fly about, and we're now the city of design, and that's great, but having a whole of designers here doesn't mean they're all going to be able to sustain their practice. And that's what I'm trying to pull out with the, the podcast, is that uh-huh. it is a struggle day to day, and as you're talking about, sometimes you have to be uncomfortable yeah. to push yourself. And you it's often when you do your best work. Yeah. But it's then pushing through that and maintaining it and, mm-hmm. and saying it is worth this. Yeah. Um, sustaining my own creative practice as opposed to yeah. moving to London, Edinburgh, Glasgow and just finding a job in an agency or, or wherever. Which yeah. Is in some ways the easy way out. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'm all for the easy way out. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes, I, like, don't make life hard for yourself. Because, you know, like, we all know, like, sometimes the easy way out, I, I, kind of, I sometimes think about this, about the balance between the work that you do to, to, to kind of feed your other work, mm-hmm. your, in inverted commas, real work, right? Yeah. So for me, a lot of that's kind of my, my art practice. I would hate to do that 100% of the time. I think I'd go insane. Because I think I would just go down that rab- rabbit hole of, 
navel-gazing and, and speaking to myself a little bit too much. Um, so I quite like the balance. But I also imagine sometimes like, oh, do you know what? Life would be easier if I just had a, the full-time job, a real job, as our parents sometimes call it, you know, a real job. But then I think, actually, if I got that job, I think I'd just be very quickly trying to find my way out of it, to get my way out of it. I think also what's quite, to think about it in five-year chunks, I think that um, I maybe have a danger of being overly institutionalised from, from doing kind of three degrees, right? Sounds too close to a band-aid. That I kind of think of of success and measure that sometimes in academic years, you know, sometimes even semesters. What have I done this semester? Um, working as a curator, you can only really measure that in three years, I think. No less than three years. But I think in terms of a creative practice, think about it in five years. Because enough, it gives you enough time for stuff to have come in and affected it in a, in a real sense, in just what life throws at you. You know, marriages, deaths, births, all that kind of stuff. Just life happening, like moving from one city to another. And, and right now, like we've got three kids, I'm totally in the baby tunnel. Um, I know that I can't, give every waking hour to my my work and some of my friends who are in their 50s who've whose kids have just left home they're back making their work full-time and they reassure you that it comes again you know it happens again i don't know i'm, I'm less worried about it now i'm more worried about quality i'm more worried about it can't just be good enough you know the best work that, that I enjoy is something that you don't get immediately, usually. It's something that isn't always easy, is sometimes um, indecipherable, or that kind of niggles at you for some time. And I think that those niggles are really important. It comes back to something I've talked to other people about, and that's arcs in that the perception of success mm -hmm. and how our public facing yeah. persona is very different to to what's actually going on in our lives and how our practice is, is created and how we work through that and then it's just those outputs those yeah. touch points that are then presented to the wider world uh -huh. that you want people to see yeah I suppose I suppose by being an artist it gives you license to be absolutely vulnerable I think as well to overexpose oneself and I think that Sometimes that can be a bit of an act. Some, but yeah, I, I've, I've kind of got a, the da I, that's a dangerous um, proclivity of mine is to kind of, is maybe to overshare and to be sometimes a little bit too, too honest with how I kind of feel about stuff. But then I do totally understand the need for being reserved and fucking awful word of being professional. Sometimes when you're being professional, you're just sometimes being paid, you know? You're being paid to toe a certain line or you're not just speaking from your own point of view. You're not, being, you're not there to, to, to share your deepest thoughts or how you feel about it, but you're maybe speaking for a bunch of other folk as well. So I am quite, I am quite mindful of, of that. But yeah, that kind of it is sometimes you can't, you feel like you can't just 
say exactly how it is or how how close it is that you are to giving up and that you don't know what's on the other side of that giving up. Do you know what I mean? I, I find that it is, it, is, it, is, it is difficult. I don't know. I kind of go through waves of, of, of absolute despair with it all. And fuck it. That's it. And I, I, like, as I said, wanting it all to be over. Not in any kind of suicidal way or anything, you know, but just... How can I put this? I think that I'm becoming more and more aware that the things that that are kind of triggers for those feelings are bullshit. Do you know what I mean? Like, and just not to listen to them. Like, feeling of envy is bullshit, and it can eat you up inside. Seeing other people that have success, which is an absolute rare thing, but recognising when people deserve it, and it's theirs, and they should absolutely own it. But yeah, I suppose coming back to this this thing of success and how we define it, it is a, quite a lot of the time it's it's this constant need for validation. Eat you up, can't it? Whether it's getting that gig, whether it's getting the new job, whether it's getting some press or getting an award. I do understand it and I understand that need for it. But I think it has to be in your from your peers, right? Mm-hmm. From the people that you value, valuing your work. That that kind of need for feedback as well. That need for critical feedback is important to kind of keep you on the right track. I mean, how many people measure success by money anymore? I don't know. I think a lot of people still do. And it does come into it, doesn't it? I mean, like it really does. Let's not be naive. I think to a certain point. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the panic, the panic of not having money, which is a, like a, I think also, I kind of live in that fear still. The panic of, of not having work. Somebody was telling me the other day her kind of anger at this word, the precariat. You know, the, these people who live these dangerously fickle lives and not wanting to be lumped in with that because almost it, it kind of prolongs that, that period it's saying that you are the precariat like you're kind of going to be perennially the precariat you're going to be constantly this person who lives in a kind of risky financial situation or living from one freelance job to the next um i'm that i'm totally that and i do worry about that and and it, it's a kind of really really recent um memory of going fuck we've got no money coming in and that sometimes it's just about getting a job it's just about a job and all the jobs that i mean my cv is ridiculous like the the, from ranging from kind of paper rounds to working in factories you know like loads of different jobs that kind of just kept kept us going you know i can remember working for the, the the film house in Edinburgh only a couple of years ago in the front of the house and although it's great being that close to so many M&Ms just I once just spent my whole you know the last three hours wage on on some kind of Korean soup or something some really kind of shishi lunch and some parking uh, and just thinking fuck we're probably going to have to wrap up yeah sure. so I've yeah. got one final Go question do it. Okay. 
Dundee's a sort of city of change at the moment, massively, in mm. a lot of different ways and a lot of different aspects. Yeah. So for you, what's what change is important? Already, the change that I've already seen. No, no change, change, change that you would like to see going forward. Confidence. I think that we need to have a change in confidence. I think it's the city is starting to to feel that confidence, but it, it you know it's not just going to happen overnight. We need to be aware that you know there's there's a great deal of poverty in, in this city, and that cultural culture isn't always it's not necessarily going to solve all of these kind of problems. But speaking from a uh, speaking for I suppose. Uh, my community, uh, artists and designers, yeah, having a, a, a confidence in, in what we do. A confidence as a city. We talk about this this new designation designation of UNESCO City of Design as being something, uh, questioning it as something, have we earned this? Or is this the kind of right uh, name for us? Is this an overinflated title? Are we deserved of it? I think it's the wrong kind of attitude to have um, or, or even to kind of think that these kind of baubles that we, we attach around the ears of a city um, is the kind of wrong way to give it ornamentation. I think it's something that you just kind of go, fucking earn it. You know, like the v in Dundee, you know, when everyone kind of scoffed at that, I think we, ab- it, we absolutely deserve it. And I think that yeah, so I'd like to see that change in confidence because when people have confidence, they begin to flare. You know, they begin to do things that they they kind of didn't think were possible beforehand because they they've got that confidence to take risk. So yeah, I'd like to see confidence first and then massive risk. <laughs> I'd like to see some. I'd like to see a, a bit more wildness. Yeah, that's it. Wildness. Confidence, risk. And that was episode 10 with Sean Parkinson. Big thanks to him for coming on as a guest. We didn't quite get round to mentioning where you can find him online. Um, On Twitter, he is Sean Parkinson. That's S I O N. P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N He's also on Tumblr, Instagram, SoundCloud but again you can find all those links in the show notes and he is producing the 2017 Dundee Design Festival as we mentioned in the podcast so do look out for that that's coming out in May and there are a few bits and pieces about what to expect alongside the, the theme of the factory floor online if you give that a search And that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you next Wednesday.